Are you hesitating to take the next step in your e-commerce journey? Founder Plus has you covered with proven frameworks tailored to your business needs for fast results, a supportive community of over 30,000 like-minded entrepreneurs and weekly live mentorship sessions. Founder Plus is your key to success. Try Founder Plus today for just $1 for seven days and start building your dream business with confidence. You can visit founder.com forward slash start dollar trial or click the link in the description to claim your trial. Hey, Founder Fam, before we dive into another incredible conversation, I want to share something really special with you. Whether you're just joining us or you've been following us since the beginning, you've been a critical part of our community working to change entrepreneurial education. I started Founder almost a decade ago with the mission to provide entrepreneurs access to the world's greatest business leaders. Our goal was to break down barriers to entrepreneurial education, and that's taken us on a journey from Founder Magazine to this podcast and beyond, and today marks the next step in that journey, Founder Plus. I'm proud to introduce you to Founder Plus, which is an all-access pass to each of our online courses and programs and their proven frameworks for success. It puts every strategy we've compiled from world-class instructors at your fingertips while connecting you to a global network of like-minded entrepreneurs. Founder Plus will take your business to the next level for today and tomorrow. So whether you've just joined our family or you've watched us grow from humble beginnings, we're really thrilled to have you join us in this exciting new phase of making the founder brand and this company the world's best entrepreneurial community to launch and grow your business. So finally, before we get into today's episode, I'm inviting you to come back, check out Founder Plus and go to founder.com forward slash membership. I'm really excited, guys. This is an incredible new evolution of entrepreneurial education, and our mission is really to get as many of these founders that we interview to teach and also give back on the Founder Plus platform and really go more in depth with the knowledge and the experiences and the lessons learned that they're sharing all in Founder Plus. So guys, please go check it out if you're enjoying these interviews. That's it from me. I hope you enjoy this episode. Now let's jump in. What you need is thirst. You need to be a thirsty human. Who is intent on learning. It's a really fascinating fascinating exploration of human potential. Now. Now. The Founder Podcast. Even the greatest entrepreneurs had help. If you want to learn from the most successful founders on the planet, you are in the right place. Branson, Mark Cuban, Tony Robbins, Tim Ferriss, Ariana Huffington, Steve Case, Gary V, Sophia Amoroso, Barbara Corcoran, Damon John. Learn from the greatest minds in business today with interviews hosted by Nathan Chan. This is not your average entrepreneur podcast. The Founder Podcast. Hey, Founder fam, welcome back to another episode of the Founder Podcast. Today, we're speaking with Jessica Rolf, who's the co-founder of Love Every and Happy Family. As the co-founder of Happy Family, she helped scale the organic baby food business from zero to 63 million in sales and was acquired by Danone in 2016. From there, Jessica started the early childhood brand Love Every, which now has over 300,000 active subscribers and is one of Fast Company's most innovative companies. This is an incredible interview. We're going to go deep on the ins and outs of building a subscription business, the importance of building a good product, really alongside good marketing and strategy, and really how to stand out in the competitive childhood industry. 
So guys, please welcome to the Founder Podcast, Jessica Rolf. Jessica, the first question that I ask everyone that comes on is, how'd you get your job, okay? How'd you find yourself doing the work you're doing today? So it began with Early Life Nutrition, with my company that I co-founded with my partner called Happy Family. And then it pivoted to my current company called Love Every. And it was really, the first company was really an experience of building a company from scratch. I didn't have children of my own. My partner had the idea to reinvent the organic baby food category. So at the time, only 3% of all baby food consumed was organic. And we had a dream to change the way that babies are fed in this country. We really wanted to bring that best nutrition to early life. And so we co-founded this company, Happy Family, and learned every lesson imaginable in scaling the company, miraculously built it to a uh, company that was, took almost leading, the leading, sorry, let me just start, miraculously built a company that is now the leading organic brand in the U.S. and sold that company to a multinational called Danone. So that was just an incredible experience. I remember going to bed every night dreaming about building this company that was purposeful, that was successful, that was changing the way that babies were fed. At the time, I had my own children, and I found myself feeling so confident about what I was feeding them. I like Sardines was one of my one-year-old's first words. It was kind of nuts. But I felt so good about the nutrition, but really didn't know what was going on with development. And so if you think about it, you know, we are so much of what we eat. And we're so much about those early experiences. Something like, this might surprise you, but 90% of the human brain is developed by age five. And there's so much about those early experiences that matter because only 50% of who we become is our genetics. The other half is that environment. And so I found myself with, you know, this great food, all these plastic, junky, flashy light toys. And I was like, oh my gosh, there could be something better here, something more intentional. And so I discovered a white paper on infant brain development, which sounds really quite nerdy that I read it, but I love digging into the science. And I learned all these micro development windows that are opening and closing in a child's brain over time. And I started making my own toys. I started experiencing the world through my child's eyes and realizing that there could be something really different here and I could be landing another big idea in early life. Mm, And... Now, like, love very. You guys have over shipped over 1.3 million play kits in the past 12 months, and you have over 300,000 active subscribers. I'm, it's interesting that you bring this up because I think oftentimes people are like, oh, that's so cute. That's so sweet. You give babies organic food and you make toys for little children, and they don't really honor the fact that we are working in a really important space that actually from a business perspective is a financially, you know, it's, it's really attractive. We have a really, we built an engine of recurring revenue growth through our business by bringing purpose and confidence to parents in early childhood. So we have 320,000 subscribers, um, 200 million, you know, in run rate revenue, um, 150 million in subscription ARRs. We've got world-class retention in our subscription program. So all the business metrics are there, but I think that it can be easily overlooked by, oh, that's so cute and kind of pat you on the hat, uh, pat you on the head thinking, uh, that's adorable that you're making toys for babies. Yeah, no, this is really not just the mission and the things that you're doing, Jessica, but like this is from a business acumen side, this sounds like a very impressive business. So 
I'd love to, before we jump in though, I'd love to talk about your early stages and your early journey of really founding Happy Family. Can you tell us about a little bit how that business got started? Like you wanted to create uh, a company that serves uh, families and, you know, had, had you done anything in this space before? Was this like a you know, had, like, had, had you been in this space before uh, professionally? Talk me through that. Great question. I really credit my co-founder, Shazi. It was her idea to create Happy Family. So she came to me with this idea to make fresh baby food. I was working at Whole Foods at the time. I had averted a career, a legal career. I had thought I wanted to be a lawyer and then said, I got to scratch this plan. And I went to business school with this interest in the passion between this connection. I had a passion around the connection of this business and social change, that business can actually be a platform for good. So I was working at Whole Foods and someone put us in touch. And I was so enthralled with Shazi's vision to make fresh baby food available nationwide. And I looked at the numbers. The baby food category is all Gerber. It's so many jars. Really, the organic baby food set is so small compared to the possibilities and the opportunity to create a modern brand for parents. And so I moved to New York and I joined her to co-found the company. And we started from scratch. We each put in uh, $10,000. She had already been building up her savings and working a lot on this idea for a long time before I joined her. And together we went out, made a business plan, realized that fresh baby food was not going to scale. It was not going to work. Like I had a pH meter in my kitchen and I was making all these batches of homemade baby food and sending my husband to work with them um, because I didn't want to waste all this puree. Uh, and so we realized that fresh wasn't going to work, pivoted to frozen, launched the company, raised money through friends and family and kind of the massive hustle and uh, and had a failure when we when we launched the company. Tell us we about that. launched frozen baby food and nobody wanted to buy it. Mm. How, how long so did we sorry, please go on. Yeah. Yeah. So then we pivoted to we thought fresh wasn't going to work. Frozen really wasn't going to work. And we hung in there. We stayed in the game. We were able to get Retailers loved our products on the shelf because it was so exciting. Frozen baby food is organic. It's this new kind of company that's doing something different. And when parents would go to the freezer aisle, they they couldn't find that they were they weren't sorry. when parents would go to the baby food aisle, they were look they weren't thinking, oh, let me go over to the frozen section and go find some baby food. So we hung in there for as long as we could. We then launched our first cereal, a dry product cereal, got lucky competitor was out of stock. We took over the shelves and then we were off. We then launched puffs, snacks. We then landed on the pouch, the squeezy pouches that are so ubiquitous now. And we were able to turn the business around and landed a success. Mm. Such a great name too, but there's, there's a lot I want to unpack there because there's, there's some interesting pieces of this story. So you were introduced to your co-founder, uh, but you didn't know her beforehand. How did that? How did that happen? Yeah, so I was in business school and I volunteered at a stand for a Dwala selling fresh juice. I was getting paid something, you know, some kind of hourly fee to try and get college students to buy juice. And the manager of this this little operation, this Dwala operation on campus, 
I spoke to her and I said, you know, I'm really passionate about the food industry and I'd love to start a company in food. I really believe in the value of organic food. I'm in business school. And she said, you've got to meet my friend Shazi. This woman's name is Lisa Pradell. I'll always remember her. And she said, Shazi has an idea to make fresh baby food. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's a great idea. And so she gave me her number. And I remember having a particularly bad day at work that day, you know, a lot of number crunching at Whole Foods. And I was like, I can do something to change my trajectory here. I'm going to call this woman Shazi and hear more about her business. It turned out that her prior founder had, they had parted ways and she was looking for a new partner. And she was in New York. I was in Austin, Texas. And we had some phone calls and then we had more phone calls and it just, we just connected and we decided over literally, I, I think I visited her once. I went out to New York and I visited her in person, came back, told my boyfriend at the time who became my husband, I really want to take this risk, leave this job. I got to move to New York so I can join this woman and help her build this company. That's crazy. What a crazy story. And then what happened next? Like how long did it take you guys? So you said it, you, both of you put in around 10 grand each to to get things started. Um, how long did it take you guys to launch and talk us through even just getting into uh, retail stores? Like that that's a feat in of itself. So talk, can you talk us through those early days? The early days were so, were so fascinating. So first of all, I had five different apartments in about 12 months. So my, my now husband and I just moved around New York trying to couch surf, figure out how to make it make ends meet while living in New York. When I moved there, I realized that Shazi was also trying to make ends meet and was really exhausted by you know all the business that she had been working on. So she ended up um, needing to do part-time real estate while we both were working on this business. So I would go to her house when she was she was working so many hours. I would co- go to her house. Her cats were crawling all over our keyboard. We would mix up some different blends in her blender. We would hustle and write the business plan. And soon, again, learned with the pH meters at home through this purees that this fresh wasn't going to work. We had a factory that we had lined up. And Shazi was so excited. She was like, you come to New York and I have a factory for us. Because a factory is a really hard thing to find when you're building food. Not only is it hard to find in general, but it's really hard to get somebody to take a bet on making baby food. It is a high risk product. And so we got to New York. I was like, let me go see this factory. And this guy had this factory. He was making soups. And it was not a place that you could imagine making baby food. Let me just leave it at that. We did joke that we had silent partners. When you turned out the lights at night, the rats would run around uh, the floor of the factory. And so those were our silent partners. Um, But we, so we soon realized that we really couldn't scale the business there, but he gave us free office space. And it was, it was, we were grateful. Um, It was quite a scene uh, in this, in this factory. So we tried to make some batches. We tried to test some things, realized that, you know, this this fresh concept really wasn't going to work. And that was the big pre-launch pivot that I think was one of the hardest things to navigate. Went to Frozen, convinced another guy, uh, Ian's Natural Foods, the founder of Ian's Natural Foods, to take a bet on us and started making batches, uh, made little prototypes. I remember Shazi and I talked about ourselves like we were Laverne and Shirley on the production line. Like we had these little cubes that we were trying to squirt baby food in. And we had this 
this dispenser that would squirt the baby food. And this dispenser was a very expensive machine for us. It was it was like 80 grand. And the factory, we put some money down and the factory took out a loan and got this squirter machine. And so I would squirt the peas and then I would hand it over to Shazi and she would squirt the carrots and then we would keep going. So um, that was getting to our first prototype. We then shipped those prototypes to Target and to Whole Foods. Uh, and we we got retailers to believe in us. I really honestly... It's remarkable thinking about it now, but I think they were looking for something different. They knew that this was such a valuable customer. The new parent was such a valuable customer for them, and that they they knew that the that the category was pretty stale, so they were willing to take a bet on us. What was the process? Did you have connections at Whole Foods at the time to get in there and also Target from working there? Or like talk us through that because they would have been taking a, a bet on you guys too. So our connections at Target came through another investor who didn't invest in us. So you, but he had built a company at Target and he said, here, have my Target connection. And then that Target connection sent it us somewhere else. So it's always such a long road, but you can, you can do it is, is my advice to entrepreneurs. You never know where a breakthrough will happen, um, which, what connection might surface something special. And then I thought, that I had been working at Whole Foods headquarters, that this was going to be kind of in the bag, right? I had all these connections to the national buyers. I had really excited to have been interned at, at Whole Foods through business school and then went to work there for a little over a year after business school. It turns out that these decisions are made at the regional level. And so we convinced you know, one of these regions to take a bet on us. And then the work really started, which was trying to get the actual sales to happen in the stores. So I will say that it was almost easier to get the retailers to take us and much harder to get the sell. Mm, and you have a story about the sales, about your dad uh, driving to stores to buy your product. Can you tell us about that? Target ran data on us to see if we were going to exist and, and live beyond live to another day. And we got access to that data, that sell-through data. And I remember the first time we had just made, I don't know, maybe our second batch of food at the factory. And Shazi and I were sitting at a Days Inn in Danvers. Uh, and we were sitting on the floor and we were like, oh my gosh, in their inbox was the sales data. And we opened it and it was terrible. And so we were like, what can we do to just survive? And so we thought, you know, why don't, I'm gonna just fly to Minnesota. It's a 24 store test. I got in my dad's station wagon. We started buying up. We went to all the different stores. There were some in Iowa that we weren't able to make, but we went, my dad had a map and it was like my mobile office, you know, this big dashboard in his, in his station wagon with the map of all the stores. And we drove around and we bought the products and then we handed them out to customers as they were shopping, trying to get them to try the product. So my dad was trying to spy pregnant women or people with children or anybody with a stroller, and then we were approaching them cold. I was approaching them cold, handing them the frozen baby food. And Shazi on the other, in, in New York, was doing the same with our other retailer um, in New York. So we were really hustling this, uh, the sales in the beginning. Yeah, wow. And then at what point in time did you realize you guys had to pivot? Talk us through kind of that transition, because it sounds like you guys were going through that kind of trough of sorrow you know it's you've launched it's exciting but it's 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 hard to get momentum i think it was the sales data and really trying to survive 
and be able to build a sustainable business, we knew that we couldn't do it in the freezer. And so we started putting little tags on in the jar section, think outside the jar, look inside the freezer. We tried to do some cross-marketing, but we thought the best way to do this is to have a product in the dry aisle that would then have a coupon for the frozen baby food. So what product do we think we could create in the dry baby food aisle that was differentiated? And at the time, all the baby cereals, all the infant cereals, didn't include nutrients that were really important for brain development, like DHA, or for digestion, like probiotics. And so we blended a cereal with added DHA and probiotics, and it was more of a premium approach to the cereals that were on the market, and we launched those cereals in on shelf. The big break, I will say, the true transformation, I would say, for the early stages of the business was, again, for some reason, the main cereal competitor, Earth's Best, which was all the cereal lined up so many boxes of Earth's Best cereal, they had some supply issue. And so for some reason, for like three or four months, we were the only cereal on shelf. And they just stocked us. I remember a picture of just all of our little cans lined up. We couldn't believe it. And so that was really the break that we got to be able to scale you know, to the next level. Mm. And how much money had you raised at that point? So we first raised 550 and our first round of financing. That was a rolling raise. So we were really good at taking in money and spending it as soon as we could. It took us about nine months to raise that 550. I would say that the later stage, it was a convertible note. So there was some interest being paid before it converted to equity. So the earliest stage investors got an advantage, but I don't think it was as much of an advantage as they deserved, given the transformation that the business went through in those early, early rounds of financing. So raised 550000 and then we were just constantly fundraising. So we were always rolling into a next funding round. And the funding rounds did get easier over time as we started getting some traction. Got you. And when did you, was it when you launched the serial that you kind of knew you'd be okay? Or was there other difficult times where you were like, wow, is this going to work? It's a great question. I think probably the answer is, is that I didn't let myself think, am I going to be okay? Very often. I just sort of kept going. When we, we did hit a transformational point when we launched these puff cereal products. So we made an organic version of this cereal that was a finger food. It was a little puff in a container and our ability to, we stripped out all of the kind of fake flavors, the fake colors, the things that the other competitors had and made a natural version. And those puffs truly got, had product market fit. So customers wanted them. They loved our natural approach. And that's what started getting us momentum. And so it was surprising because we started the company wanting to make fresh baby food, pivoting to frozen peas, frozen carrots, frozen foods. And then we started to scale really with a snack product. After that, we then had enough momentum to launch the pouch, which really scaled our business. That convenient format was so recognizable for parents. It was so convenient. They loved the fact that children could self-feed and hold it in their hands. And we included nutrients like chia, um, a version of chia. We mixed fruits and vegetables into those pouches. And so parents really felt you know, like we were giving them a gift of healthy food inside of a, a package that was really fun for their children and toddlers to to eat. Mm. You talk about product market fit 
Um, how did you know that you'd hit product market fit? Can you describe that to us? Because I think there's a common theme here now with what you guys are doing with Love Very as well. So how did you know? It's different when you're selling product at retail than when you're selling product direct. So the there's a little bit of a lag time when you're selling product at retail, obviously, of knowing when you've hit it, when you've hit that product market fit moment. I would say for us, it was in the data and the sell-through. And you can tell within within four weeks whether you have a success or not at retail. And I would say a lot of people wait a little bit too long, but the early sales indicate so much about your future success with the product line. With Love Every, we have built a brand on a direct relationship with our customers. And that was totally different from my first business. So my co-founder, Rod Morris, is excellent at scaling mission-driven companies. He is in charge of revenue here and growth. And so our ability to to market to customers one-to-one over social platforms, over word of mouth eventually, became word, it's become word of mouth, has been so powerful. When we first launched our Play Gym product, which we spent really years building and making, it felt like we were never going to launch this first product for Love Every. We had done so much testing to make sure that we had our best shot at product market fit at the moment that we launched that product versus the first time with Happy Family, we just didn't do much testing. We really built the business on instinct first, maybe some testing, maybe a little feedback. Really at Love Every, we built, we verified all of our instincts and then co-created and co-evolved um, the product with our customers prior to launch so that we would hit product market fit at launch. The moment we, we launched the Play Gym, we realized we hit product market fit because influencers started posting about it. Our sales, we had a little app on our phone, you know, the the, the Shopify app, and it would go cha-ching every time there was a sale. Um, so our direct sales were strong. strong. We were selling out on Amazon within uh, weeks of launch for that first product. Yeah, so you can't, people can't get the product fast enough. It's just flying out the doors. And it's, it's, effortless to sell it? I wouldn't say effortless. No. I would say that there's always two sides of this coin that is so important to honor that you have to have an amazing product and you have to have a fantastic selling strategy and marketing strategy. And if you don't have both pieces really intact and in line, then you don't have a successful company. So for us with Love Every, we knew that we had product market fit because of all the feedback that we got, because it became more more word of mouth. But we've had to educate customers from the beginning, and we have to invest in non-organic channels and paid channels to make sure that we're building our constantly building our brand awareness among new parents. With product at retail, you kind of hope that your package will pop out to them when they're walking by on shelf. That is probably point of sale, one of the the most powerful um, moments. And so you really need your product to stand out in terms of, you know, for us, it had claims around organic, around nutrients. It looked different, more modern, fresher for parents. And we really hit our stride again with those pouches because it was a visible, fresh new format for parents to attach to. So talk to me around Happy Family, how the acquisition to Danone came around. How, how long were you running that company for and, and what made you make that decision to sell? Yeah. So Shazi and I were running that company for seven years before 
selling it to Group Danone. And I would say that it was really the next evolution for us. Danone was number one in infant, sorry, Danone was number two in infant nutrition globally, right behind Nestle. And they did not have any food businesses in the U.S. And so for us, it was such a natural fit for us to be a part of this global brand. We were really interested in building a formula with them that was a next generation infant formula that was more nutritious, pure, more based on what parents really are looking for in terms of of nutrition for their infants. And so we were able to build that with Danone. So it was almost like Danone was the fullest expression of happy family. Hey guys, I hope you're enjoying this episode and learning a ton. As you know, in this series, we interview some of the greatest founders of our generation to find out how they did it. However, if you're thinking of starting your own business and you want to hear from some incredible stories from everyday people like you or I who are actually in the trenches, only been building their business for maybe one year or two years, like that are building right now and they're really in the early stages, but they're getting success, you should come and check out our new podcast from Zero to Founder, hosted by our community manager, Molly Flynn. These are in the trenches stories from our very own successful students that have gone through some of our programs. People just like you who are deep within the process of building their very own successful business. These are the founders of tomorrow. You can find the From Zero to Founder podcast on all platforms. And remember, it's founder without the E. All right, now let's jump in the show. So you exited Happy Family in 2016. Was it inevitable that you'd start another business? You know, it's so interesting. I think oftentimes we're really just guided by our purpose. And a lot of my family and friends were like, really, you're going to do this again? And I just couldn't help it. I felt like I wasn't done with the experience of creating a company and co-creating a company. And so my partner, Rod, and I that just... We have a 50-50 partnership. We've really built this business together. And that process has been one of the most satisfying things that I can say um, has, has evolved, has, that process has been so satisfying for me. And it's really about trying to get out this vision that you can't help but share. I had this insight to create a different way of helping parents feel confident about their child's learning. At the time, you know, again, there's all these plastic toys, products are coming in and out. It's the most important time for you and your child, but it's so hard to not feel overwhelmed or to know where to look. And so for me, it was this deep purpose of wanting to just share this information that I had discovered, share this new way, because I had had such an incredible experience with my own children. I wanted to bring that to, frankly, to to a global market. Mm. And how did you meet your co-founder for Love Every? So I've known Rod for over 20 years. He's actually married to my best friend from growing up in Minnesota. Ah. And so how long after exiting Happy Family did you go, okay, I'm going to work on my next thing and you start speaking to Rod about this idea? Yeah. So we sold the business to Group Danone in 2013 and I had a three-year earnout. So there's an agreement where we sold... 60% of our shares and we had 40% of our shares left that we had to hit a certain revenue target in order to um, complete the transaction. So all of our investors exited at the moment that we sold the business in 2013, but Shazi and I needed needed to stay on. And that was an exciting time. 
I was learning so much about what it was like to work for a multinational. But then over time, I realized that the team just had it, that there was so much that they were doing and I wasn't as, as needed. I also simultaneously was having these amazing experiences with my own three children and dreaming about the subscription company, this direct-to-consumer program that we could offer that would really complete the picture around nutrition and now brain development. It felt so holistic in terms of my life purpose. And so I started dreaming about this business. My, I think Rod and I spoke maybe in 2015, and I was saying, you know, maybe 2016, and I was talking to him about, we were talking about, sorry, I think my co-founder Rod and I spoke in 2016 about where we wanted to move our families. So we were trying to decide, my best friend and I really wanted to move home to Minnesota, but both of our spouses were like, oh, it's too cold there. We're not, we're not really into going to Minnesota. And so we were, Rod and I were actually assigned by our spouses to think about where we all wanted to move together. And so we were on a conversation and I said, you know, I've just been thinking about this concept around early learning and I'm so interested in it. Could we, could we discuss this? And we talked and immediately he said, let's launch this company together. We'll be 50-50 partners and build it uh, side by side. And it's been, it's been great. It's been a great partnership. Yeah. Sounds like it's been an amazing partnership. So uh, talk to me around launch. How long did it take? Uh, what was MOQ? Obviously, different different world, right? Like, did you raise money to begin? Did you bootstrap? Talk us through. We did a little bootstrapping to start. And then, and Rod really kind of took took the concept while I was wrapping up at Happy Family. And then we decided in January of, sorry, I'm not going to get the dates right. Hang on one second, Nathan. Sorry. Um, so we bootstrapped the business to start. We put in a little bit of our own money and really we're exploring and testing the concept. So we, we, so we hacked together the design thinking model out of Stanford and made it our own. So we picked 25 families and we tested this early learning program with them for a year. So we flew around, met with them. We flew around three different, maybe four different times, I think. We were in their homes. And in the meantime, we were sending them this simulation of these play kits. So we were working with local woodworkers. We were sewing. I was ironing things. We were making prototypes that were the first concepts of Love Every and printing out, locally printing out guides at Kinko's and shipping out these 25 kits every two months. And then we were getting feedback. And so we would iterate, we would go into their homes, we learned about what kind of stuff that parents had, how they were engaging with their child differently with our playthings and what we could do to make the experience better. I will say ugly prototypes are actually the way to win here. You can't spend too much time on your prototypes because if you use an ugly prototype, the customers, the potential customers will not feel embarrassed telling you that they don't like it. So that's the one of the principles of design thinking. So we simulated this Play Kits program. At the same time, we were building out our first product, which is the Play Gym. And we were working to launch that product. We launched it in November of 2017. We raised seed money. We raised $3.5 million, $3 million in seed financing to start the business. And then after we launched, we raised subsequent rounds of finance. Got you. And uh, when you first launched, how did you guys get your first customer? 
Yes, we really wanted Target, to be honest, to be our first customer. So we had that in our business plan that Target was going to you know, launch our brand because I had had so much experience with Target from Happy Family. We couldn't convince Target to launch with us. And so we launched with Amazon, which was a great place to launch. We launched with Amazon because that's the place where search originates. It's the place where a lot of registries happen. And our dream was to be the number one in revenue and category on Amazon within a year of launch. And I remember literally going to sleep at night and visualizing number one in revenue in the category on Amazon, number one in revenue in the category. And within a year, we we made it. So it was kind of remarkable because there were so many products and lookalikes that were the similar idea to what we were building. Ours was three times the price and so much more intentional and Montessori-based and really focused on learning for that full year. Our, our Play Gym product was so much more robust. And so um, from there, we also launched our own platform through Shopify and started to scale the business. Yeah, crazy. So you launched on Amazon first, and that's that's an interesting idea because Amazon, like you said, they have, they have search, they have a massive customer base. When people think of direct-to-consumer, they tend to you know, do a whole pre-launch strategy, build up a wait list, you know, run ads to a landing page. But you guys just launched on Amazon. Well, we launched the Play Gym on Amazon, but actually what you just described was our strategy for the Play Kits, the early learning program that is the direct consumer subscription program. So we built the list through our Play Gym product by acquiring customers at Amazon. Now, we didn't get the direct information, but we got them to follow us on Instagram. They became familiar with our brand. We built an email, a weekly email series, talking about child development in a fresh way. And so that is how we started to build brand love. Yes, yes. And the Play Kits is where the subscription came into it. And when did you decide that you were going to launch as a, uh, the Play Kits as a subscription? Because that's an interesting that's an interesting concept. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of businesses that kind of attach a subscription to a product offering, and think that, that it's going to be a better business, a more accretive business. It's, it will you will gain more revenue over time. For us, the subscription early learning program was really essential to what we're doing. So that we always intended to build an early learning program that's sold by subscription from the beginning. But we felt like it would be too hard and complex to launch with the subscription program off the bat. Got you. So talk us through kind of um, the subscription business because uh, it's very uh, lucrative if you can get it right. And it's not easy. And it sounds like you guys have got it right. Uh, it sounds like you guys are going super fast. Like the... The growth we were talking about, like you got, you said you you're over two hundred million ARR, and you're only. When did you launch the Play Kids? It, only three years. We launched the Play Kids in 20, summer of twenty eighteen. So we've been a little over four years in market with the Play Kids. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's super impressive growth. So talk to us around like the unit economics. How do you know what to track? Uh, talk to us like how how you really mastered that, or not mastered, but you know what I mean. Got that dialed in. Yeah. So I'll start with the purpose because I really believe that when you build a subscription business on a deep purpose and a core customer need, you can build this recurring revenue engine of growth. 
for us, you know, it's so much about that child and that parent and the parent craving connection with their child as their child's growing. So babies and children change by the minute. And it is so hard for parents to know how to how to help them and what they're interested in learning at each stage. So the fact that we can pro- provide this really dynamic kit full of products that we invent ourselves combined with a guidebook that talks about all the micro development windows that are opening in that child's brain in this moment in time, and then take the guesswork out of it, build confidence for parents, ship the products six times a year for the baby year, four times a year for the toddler years, between zero and four really helps parents know what's going to happen next. The stakes are high with early early childhood. You know, a lot of the parents are getting the message that huge amount of brain growth happens and that so much of it is this environment the parents are giving to the child. So giving them the right playthings, the right guidance, the right information. We have an app that provides information for parents that has really high open rates and engagement. We have these guidebooks. That all builds confidence. So that is the purpose of the business. And I would say that typical subscription companies are marketing to adults. And to an adult, you're not changing. You're, it's really hard. The subscription company has to stay dynamic and interesting in order to capture your attention over time. Whereas for us, the customer is changing so much. So we're really serving those two customers in a really unique way, the products for the children and the content for the parents and marrying them in a unique model. Mm. And that must have been really difficult to be able to do that, right? Yeah. I mean, I think that it's difficult if you are thinking about the manufacturing of the products to highest quality standards, to thinking about the complexity of putting all these different items that we've invented ourselves and designed on our own into these kits and developing this really amazing experience for parents that is so spot on in terms of every word that we communicate with you helps you build your confidence and doesn't erode confidence or erode trust. If you can do that, if you can obsess over that customer experience, you can build a platform and a connection around trust. Parents are willing to hand over their trust readily to someone who is willing, who is who is solving this core need for them of help me feel better about this really chaotic, hard parenting experience. I want to feel more optimistic. I want to feel more confident. We bring that confidence to parents in their homes. Mm. Yeah, no, it's an incredible mission. And I'm curious, just like the difference between happy family and love every what what are you what are the, some of the key things that you're doing differently the second time round is it easier the second time round good question i would say it was much easier to scale faster yes i didn't think it would be i was kind of bracing myself for the same pain and the same struggles and the same chaotic sort of experience and all the highs and all the lows I would say that we've been able to scale and grow this business in a more sophisticated way. And there were so many learnings that Rod had from his career of scaling mission-driven companies and that I brought from my career prior of scaling Happy Family that we've poured into Love Every. So it has been easier, but we've been going faster and harder. And so ultimately... You know, it's not easier, right? Because you're you're just you're pouring your heart into it. But we are found success quicker with Love Every. We've gotten to higher revenue numbers. We've gotten to product market fit with almost all of our product launches um, from the beginning. Fundraising is always hard. Fundraising fundraising is so hard. I will say that it's easier the second time around, but not in the bag. 
So don't think that if you get a rejection from an investor that invested in you the first time around and they don't invest in you the second time, that there's anything wrong with you. It's just how hard it is just the nature of fundraising. Hmm. What about people leadership? What's changed for you this time around comparison wise? Yeah, my co-founder and I have really built a culture around this mission and this purpose. And I think that we've run a more sophisticated operation. So Rod has an incredible ability to recruit talent and he knows how to scale companies and scale teams. He had built a company from a I think it was something like 10 million in revenue up to over a billion in IPO value before joining Love Every. So he really went through having hundreds of reports. And for us, I think it's in the process and in the professionalism that we're approaching our team, but also in that spirit and that heart and that mission and really hoping that our that our employees really feel that. And we believe that they do. Mm, amazing. And um, what about kind of, I guess uh, now that you're kind of doing this the second time round, uh, what advice would you give to founders when they're looking to launch a subscription business in the e-com space, direct-to-consumer? Direct-to-consumer. I would say that obsess over your product and really do a ton of testing and research before you launch. And then after you launch, remember that your product is not done, that actually launching the product is a continuation of the product development process. And that's where you start getting feedback at scale and continue to obsess over that feedback and iterate your product. Never be satisfied with what you have. Always be looking to make it better. And do you reckon that you said it You said it before, not every, like people sometimes just kind of want to bolt on a subscription uh, to, to a product um do you think every product needs a subscription or it just depends i think it depends on the core need so for us at love every parents have a core need because they're like shopping on amazon the toys are all age graded 12 plus months i don't know how to play with this does my child need this right now what am i supposed to be doing with my baby to play and feel good about myself so that is a core need that we we solved that problem that parents have with our business at Love Every. So I think that the question that entrepreneurs should ask themselves is what is the core need that my business is solving and why does it need to be a subscription? Because, you know, face value, I think a lot of a lot of people don't really love recurring bit revenue businesses. They don't love to provide their credit card number to be charged every month or every quarter or every period of time. Businesses love it, right? We love it as a company. We love that recurring revenue, but as a customer, you know, that you're worried that you're going to forget, that you're going to get charged again, you didn't mean to, or, you know, something's going to happen. So really get down to that essence of what your purpose is and make sure that that is grounded in needing a subscription model. You talk a lot about the mission, what you guys are building with Love Every, and also the purpose. Like, I'd love to explore that a little more. How did you work out the purpose of what you're building was it from the very start or is it something that manifested over time? And what advice would you give to founders that don't have a business where the purpose isn't clearly articulated? Yeah, good question. For us, 
the purpose is to improve outcomes for children and really advocate for what that child needs at each stage and then help the parents feel really confident and good and optimistic about their parenting. And that's just a really core need as humans that we have. When you have a child, you just want the best for them, but you often don't know how to bring that to them and to bring that to their lives. So I think helping parents know what they need is 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 our purpose and helping them feel really good about that early experience. We wouldn't have a business without that purpose. That's that's everything that we are. That's everything that we do. I think every company does have a purpose. I don't think it's hard for me to imagine why you would do something without a point to it, right? And so I I think it's mining for you why? Why are you doing this business? Why are you spending your life energy, your important, you know, time and and your your lifetime on this company? What is it doing for you and what is it doing for society? So I think I think there's a lot more purpose out there. I think it's very easy to kind of throw away a oh out in the outside, oh, that doesn't look like that company has a purpose. I think that a lot of companies do have a heartbeat. It's about making sure that you amplify that as a founder. And so how often are you talking about your purpose to your team? Would you say everyone at Love Every would be able to recite your purpose, your company's purpose, word for word? Yes, I would say they would. I mean, so many of our employees are actually customers first. And they came to us because they were so excited about what we were building. And, you know, our employees that are not parents or don't have families at this moment in time, just share in the passion around, you know, they were a child once. They want the best outcomes for, you know, for humanity, I would say. And, you know, I think that human potential, we phrase it as human potential, really trying to think about what's the po- what's possible for human potential is so inspiring. So, yes, it is part of our core at Love Every to be able to be aligned with the why. Mm, yeah, I think it's super important. A um, couple more questions on the subscription side of Love Every, and then we have to work towards wrapping up. We'll move to the hot seat round. Um, what is one of the key decisions that you guys made when it comes to retaining customers of your PlayKit subscription? Yeah, it's a great question. So I would say that, you know, 84% of our net revenue comes from our existing customers and 94% of our customers come back for a second purchase. So we have world-class retention at Love Every. And again, this isn't something that we had a gimmick to get. This is all about the experience. Are we providing value and are we continuing to mine our customers for more information about how we can improve that value to them over time? So it is about never being done with what you've developed in your product, always looking back, always trying to iterate and improve your product based on feedback. And we think that if we do that, that we will be able to to be able to continue to re- retain customers at this world-class rate. Yeah, awesome. And uh, what about pricing? Talk to us about pricing. A lot of people don't talk about pricing, but it's an incredible lever to Keep your business alive, especially when you look at costs of uh, you know raw materials going up. Uh, we talk about uh, costs of paid advertising, all sorts of variables that come into play when it comes to scaling a business. Um, talk to me about how you guys worked out pricing. So we, I will start with sort of the levers of our business. So our CAC has remained stable pretty much since we got past the first kind of 18 months of of scaling. We built a team and our 
customer retention has remained stable and our CAC has remained stable. We have been able to retain customers because uh, we we've been able to acquire the customers at such a stable CAC because so much of our acquisition is organic. So 60 over 60% of our customer acquisition is organic. About 40% of our customers hear about Love Every through a friend. So this is a category where parents are just talking to each other. And so if we can give them a great experience that's physical, it's in their homes, they're playing with their babies, they're playing with their young children, their friends see the product and ask about it. So, so much of that kind of lever is really important to keep the business healthy. We did really suffer from the supply chain challenges, especially last year. So our logistics costs went through the roof. And I'm sure you've heard this from a lot of the founders you've spoken to, and it's just been in the news, of course. Container shipping prices, we were also not optimized in terms of our logistics and our warehouse. We made a transition. We decided to make a really hard choice to not raise prices. We are not a profitable company but we decided not to raise prices because we felt that our price point was right for the customer at this moment in time. And I think that that strength to hold steady through the sort of everybody's like grabbing for grabbing for the extra dollar on inflation and saying, okay, now's the time. This is, this time is not going to come back again. I got to raise my prices. Everybody's doing it. Actually our ability to our, our decision to not raise prices really helped us to continue to grow at a really strong rate over time. So that was a hard choice. And now we're working to use that scale to improve our margin, to improve our costs, and to build a sustainable business. Yeah, wow. Thank you for sharing. Um, All right, Jessica, we have to move to the hot seat round and then we'll work towards wrapping up. I'm conscious of time. All right, so first question I have, what lessons have you learned from your kids that you've applied to business? I would say that I'm constantly learning lessons from my kids. My middle child told me that, okay, let me start over. I'm constantly learning from my kids. I would say I did a podcast interview that I wasn't very proud of a couple weeks ago and I was beating myself up about it. I was like, oh, I could have done better. I could have done better. And my son, my son, my daughter said, uh, you face it, you fix it. So I was like, let me go see if we can edit out any of the any of the things that I feel embarrassed about saying, right? <laughs> this is so relevant, right, for this podcast interview. Second, my son said, you know, you can't change the past. You can only change the future. You can only do better next time. So just look at what you did wrong and do better next time. So I hope that this interview has been better. I've at least I felt better with this interview, but I would say that my children have become my coaches. And so they are teaching me all the time, those lessons that I impart to them and that they are picking up from the world. They're bringing it back in their childlike voices with their innocence. And it really resonates. (laughs) That's awesome. How do you maintain a healthy co-founder relationship? Well, we have a ton of trust because we've known each other for so long. But I would say to maintain that relationship has been, it's been very important for us to have co-founder check-in time. So we actually just discussed this yesterday and we said, you know, we're not able to work out some of those challenges that we have when we're in front of the team. Can we write down where we're disagreeing? Because we have a lot of areas where we, on the day-to-day, have different perspectives. And can we have some spe- some co-founder time? We had that today and it was fantastic. So I think just being able to carve out that time together. It sounds so simple, but it's been really powerful for us. And I hope that we can get back into our rhythm. Awesome. Last question. If you could have dinner with any entrepreneur, dead or alive, who would it be and why? I mean, Yvonne Chouinard, hands down, he gave away his company 
Patagonia to planet Earth and to climate. I am so inspired by him. And so, yes, I can't, I would love to pick his brain about how he thought about that evolution for Patagonia and what he sees for our future. Mm, great one. Yeah, he's on the list, someone we want to speak to. Awesome. Well, look, thank you so much, Jessica, for sharing all your experiences, lessons learned, and congratulations on all your success. I'm really looking forward to uh, watching your journey from afar with Love Every and uh, yeah, looking forward to that IPO. Thanks so much, Nathan, for having me. It's been a pleasure. Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed this interview. As you might already know, our mission at Founder is to help tens of millions of people every single week with our content either start or grow their business, which is exactly why we're partnering with world-class founders such as Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills such as negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free exclusive trainings, please go to founder.com forward slash free. These are 100%. We go super in-depth on teaching a particular topic, and I know that you're going to love them if you enjoy this podcast. So just go to founder.com forward slash free. All right, guys, I'll see you in the next episode.